Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the reading of your word. We recognize that it provides instruction for our lives so that we might live in a manner and in a way that is pleasing to you. We ask that as we hear your word preached, that your spirit would take the words that we hear and to be able to see how we might be able to apply it in our context, in our lives, that we would indeed live a life that is pleasing to you. So we ask that your spirit would bless this time, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So years ago, my parents, brother, and I, we met with a lawyer to discuss their will. Their will would contain instructions for my brother and me to follow if one of my parents should ever pass away. The will explained that if one of them entered into a comatose state with no hope of physical recovery, should we use medical technology to sustain their life? Uh, if one of them lacked the mental facility to make any type of decisions concerning their physical well-being, then who would actually have the authority to make decisions on their behalf? Uh, the will explained that if one of them should die, who should retain control of their assets? And then the will also detailed how should those remaining assets be used? Uh, the lawyer took note of all these instructions and wrote them down in a legally binding document called a will. And when one of them died, my brother and I would follow the instructions outlined in my parents' will. Now, we occasionally need instructions on what to do when a person is absent. In my case, my parents provided those instructions in a will in case any of them would be absent due to death. But there are also other circumstances where such instructions are helpful. Uh, think about the mom that's ready to go on a trip with her girlfriends. She leaves instructions for dad, take Johnny to the soccer game. Remember that Jane has a piano recital in the afternoon. And for dinner, be sure to reheat the lasagna. Or when a supervisor goes on a vacation, he leaves instruction for his team on what needs to get done by the time he returns. Uh, Jack will oversee the turbine project in my absence. Amy, be sure to follow up with that supplier about those turbine blades. And if you guys have any issues, be sure to talk to James. He'll handle things in my absence. Or maybe before a parent with hesitation hands over the keys to a teenager for the first time, the parent gives instructions. Remember to use your blinkers. Go light on the gas. Remember to check your blind spots. In the absence of a person, we sometimes need instructions. Now, when Paul left the church at Thessalonica, he left them instructions as well. He hoped that they would actually remember these instructions because it would aid them in their faith. And as he bid farewell to the Thessalonians, he may have echoed another teacher. Remember what you have learned. Save you, it will. And when he heard about the Thessalonian church suffering, he feared for their faith. He sent Timothy to check on them. And when Timothy returned to Paul, Timothy reported in general, the Thessalonians were doing great. But they may have needed to have their memory refreshed in certain areas, especially when it concerns God's will for their lives. And that if the Thessalonian church remembered these instructions and they remembered to follow them, then the church would continue to flourish. Like the Thessalonians, we occasionally need some reminding. Our memories require some refreshing. 
what is God's will for our life? What does God want us to do so that our church would be able to flourish? And what's God's instruction to us? Now, God's response would echo Paul's instruction. God's will is for you to pursue holiness. But I think that needs some fleshing out. And Paul's letter to the Thessalonians will flesh out this idea of pursuing holiness. So please turn your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians. We'll be specifically in chapter 4 today. Now, from this morning's text, we're going to discuss three questions. Uh, First, when do we remember God's will is to pursue holiness? Uh, Second, in what areas of our life does God want us to pursue holiness? And thirdly, why do believers pursue holiness? What is the reason? So again, first, when do we remember that God's will for us is to pursue holiness? And then second, in what areas of our life does God want us to pursue holiness? And lastly, why do believers pursue holiness? So first, when do we remember God's will is to pursue holiness? Well, believers remember God's will is to pursue holiness when they meditate on his word. When a believer reflects on what God has said and revealed in scripture, they will remember God's will for them is to pursue holiness. That God reminds us to be holy when we read his word and we think deeply about what it says. Believers remember God's will is to pursue holiness when they meditate on his word. Paul asked the Thessalonians, specifically in this text, to remember his instruction to please God. Now look with me at the first half of verse 1. It says this, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. Now in this letter, Paul shifts his attention to topics of concern. The word finally in verse 1 is kind of misleading because Paul actually hasn't finished the letter quite yet. I mean, he has, still has a whole other chapter, but the word finally actually signals a change in topic. Uh, the NIV translates it as for other matters. So what is the other matter or the other matters that Paul wants to talk about? He wants them to remember the instruction that they received to walk and please God. Now, the word walk is a metaphor for living. So another way that verse 1, that first half could be said is that, remember the instruction that you received in how to live and to please God. Now, what prompts Paul to remind the Thessalonians of his instruction? Uh, We get a hint of this in the latter half of verse 1 and verse 2. There's something that seems to be off. Now, the Thessalonians remembered to follow some of Paul's instructions, but not all of his instructions. Uh, Look with me at the latter half of verse 1. It says this, Just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. So the Thessalonians are following some of Paul's instructions. They may have they have turned from idols. They proclaim the gospel. They exhibited fruit of the Spirit, faith, love, and hope. And Paul exhorts them, 
continue doing those things. But then Paul says in verse 2 this, For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Now, why is he repeating the idea of remember my instructions? Well, I mean, it seems as though the Thessalonians are doing well, but Paul inserts this reminder because something is off. And in ancient writing, a writer would issue another reminder because the listeners may have neglected to do something or they may have forgotten something. I mean, sometimes we do this through our questions. When a husband returns from a grocery store, the wife may ask him, did you get everything? Now, then the husband then recalls in his mind the grocery list. I got the eggs. Check. I got the milk. Check. I got the cereal. Check. What, what am I missing? And then the wife at, then asks, like, well, did you remember the butter? Oh, whoops. I forgot the butter. Or think about a family trip to Bing Bend State Park. The parents are in the front of their Honda Odyssey minivan. The kids are sitting in the back. And one of the teenagers finds that their Google Pixel is running out of juice. They search through the luggage for a charging cable, but they can't find it. So they ask mom, mom, did you pack everything? And mom says, yeah. And they ask, are you sure? And then mom goes through the mental packing list. I packed the change of clothes. I packed the snacks. I paid the charging cable for my phone. I got everything. And she answers again, yep. And then the child says, did you pack my charging cable? And then mom remembers, oh, I packed the charging cable for my iPhone, but I didn't pack the charging cable for their phone. And she replies, sorry, honey, I forgot. Now, Paul reminds the Thessalonians of his instruction to get them to mentally review. And the word for instruction can also be rendered the word command. Uh, the New American Standard Bible translated this way. Remember my commands, uh, for you know what commands we gave you through the Lord Jesus. But if you think about it, instruction and commands can almost be the same thing depending on who's giving the instruction. I mean, if a teacher tells a student, please sit down. It's an instruction, but if the student doesn't follow that instruction, then he or she may expect a detention slip. Or if a flight attendant instructs you to fasten your seatbelts, she expects every passenger to put on their seatbelts. And Paul's instructions were not suggestions. He intended for these instructions to be followed. So when the Thessalonians hear verse 2, they may have begun a mental review. Okay, so what are we doing? We gather together on the first of the week, check. We practice the Lord's Supper every week, check. We give to the poor, check. We read a passage of scripture every week, check. What are we missing? And Paul reminds them that the will of God is holiness. Uh, verse 3 says, the first half of verse 3, it says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Now, the word sanctification can be derived from the word to be holy. Holy. Another way of saying verse 3 would be, for this is the will of God, that you become holy. Well, what does it mean to be holy? Well, the word occurs four times in this text. It occurs first in this verse, and then it occurs in verse 4, and then it occurs again in verse 7, and it also occurs in verse 8, referring to the Holy Spirit. 
Now, the word holy refers to this idea of being set apart. Uh, one could think of it as distinction. Uh, in the Old Testament, the instruments used for temple worship, such as the altar, the incense burner, or the candle holders, were considered set apart. They were considered holy. The priests would only use these instruments to worship God. The priests wouldn't roast nuts on the altar. The priests wouldn't try out new fragrances on that incense burner. Uh, the priests wouldn't use the candle holder to light their path back to their tent or back to their home. These were reserved for temple use only. For instance, we set aside clothing for certain occasions. As a gal, you wouldn't wear an evening gown to work. And as a guy, you wouldn't wear a tuxedo to the gym. Those outfits are reserved for special occasions. Now, the idea of holiness not only applies to certain objects, such as clothing, altars, incense burners, but it also applies to people as well. I mean, God intended for Israel to be holy. And Israel would set itself apart by obeying God's commands. And this included worshiping one God, the covenant-keeping God, Yahweh, and they would take off the seventh day of the week to be able to rest, and they would abstain from any type of behavior that would make them resemble the nations around them. Now, the idea of a holy people also transfers over to the church. Uh, Jesus calls for his followers to be the salt and light in the world. Uh, Peter writes that the church ought to be a holy nation, a people that are set apart. And the followers of Christ would become holy as they obeyed God's commands. Now, like the Thessalonians, we need to remember that God's commands given to us by the apostles and prophets, we need to meditate upon them. We need to remember these commands, these instructions, through ruminating on them, thinking about them, and meditating on them. And meditating on God's word reminds us to pursue holiness. Now, to meditate on God's word requires you not only to know what God's word says, but it also requires you to think about how does God want me to actually obey these words? And when I think about these words, how do they actually transform my affection and my love toward God? Now, take, for example, the first half of chapter 4, the phrase, to walk and to please God. Now, it teaches me that God desires me to live in a way that pleases Him. Now, to live a life that pleases God is to live a life that is set apart. But as I think about my life, I wonder, have I lived in a way that pleases God? I mean, I might have felt frustrated because the trip to Home Depot took longer than I thought to find parts for a dripping faucet, and it prompted me to be short with my kids because when I returned home, they wanted to play, but I wanted to repair the leaking faucet. And you confess this shortness towards your kid was unnecessary, and this prompts you by the Holy Spirit to apologize to your kids that you're doing something that the Word says to pursue holiness. This, to pursue set-apartness that makes you different. Now, then we move on to the second question. In what areas does God want us to pursue holiness? Is it only limited to our homes? Is it limited to our families? This brings us to this idea that God's will for believers is to pursue holiness 
in every area of their lives, in everything, even sexuality. There is no area in your life that is off limits for God to change. It could be your family, your work, your friendships, your thoughts, your emotions, and even your sexuality. And God desires his people to pursue holiness in all these areas. Now, one area of focus within our text is sexuality. And God desires for his people to pursue a holy sexuality. So God's will for believers is to pursue holiness in everything, even sexuality. Now, Paul confronts the sexual morality of the Thessalonians uh, in these verses, specifically at verse 3 in the latter half. Paul writes this, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Now, Paul, receiving the instructions from the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15, recognizes Gentile believers do not need to be circumcised. And another instruction that the council gave for the Gentile churches is to abstain from sexual immorality. Now, by sexual immorality, Paul means any type of sexual activity outside the context of a marriage between a man and a woman is prohibited. So why does Paul then equate holiness with abstention from sexually immoral behavior? Why does he mention this specifically to the Thessalonians? Now, prior sermons have already mentioned this. Uh, the Thessalonians lived in a very sexually permissive culture. Uh, writings from that century encouraged young men to have sex whenever they felt the urge to so that they could get it out of their system. So that way, by the time they grew into adulthood, they could commit themselves to civic duty and to their homes. Now, other writings of the time also encouraged married men to have children through their wives, but to fulfill their sexual desires and fantasies through mistresses and prostitutes and female slaves. And so in that culture, sex was permitted. Since the Thessalonians lived in such a sexually permissive culture, they may not have understood that God expected them also to pursue holiness in their sexuality. They may have thought, we believe in the gospel, we care for the poor, we gather together, but in the area of sexuality, we can follow the cultural norms. After all, our neighbors wouldn't raise an eyebrow if I met up with a prostitute on the weekends. And when Timothy discovered this in his visit, he reported it to Paul, and this prompted Paul's reminder. You are to pursue holiness and abstain from sexual immorality. That even in your sexuality, you need to be holy. So what does it look like to pursue holiness in sexuality? Well, it requires self-control, and knowledge. Uh, verse 4 says that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God. If the Thessalonians know God, and they do, then they need to learn to control their bodies unlike their unbelieving neighbors, that a knowledge of God should result in self-control in all areas of a person's life, even sexuality. So first, pursuing holiness begins with the knowledge of God. Well, why? 
Well, we believe that God designed creation to operate in a certain way. And in the opening chapters of Genesis, we see that God created man to rule and to be fruitful and multiply. And humanity would carry out that second command of being fruitful and multiplication through sexual intimacy experienced by a husband and a wife. Yet the introduction of sin caused a disruption to God's created order. Now, there's still some echoes of God's design that still exist within human beings that sex is an intimate act. But sin has changed the perspective of sin, especially for non-believers. For non-believers, they don't believe that God has created human beings. And they don't believe that God designed sex to only be enjoyed in marriage. Therefore, it shouldn't surprise us when the Thessalonians are living in a culture where sex is permitted in every way or fashion or type, and they receive no condemnation. This is what Paul means when he says, the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. But believers, knowing that God intended sex to be practiced in marriage, they should abstain from any type of sexual immoral activity. The pursuit of holiness then requires self-control. Look with me again at verse 4. It says that each of one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Now, the word control has the idea of mastery. A pilot knows how to control an aircraft because he has mastery of skills in how to fly it. A horse rider knows how to control his horse because he has mastery over his steed. Now, in a similar fashion, believers need to know their appetites and to be able to exercise mastery over them so their appetites do not control them. Now, what happens when someone fails to pursue holiness? Well, Paul cites two results. First, a failure to pursue holiness results in disharmony among believers. Now, look with me at verse 6. It says this, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. Now, from this verse, we can infer that there may have been a sexually immoral act that happened within the Thessalonian church. It's conjectured or even supposed that a Thessalonian believer may have actually had an affair with another believer within the church. This would explain Paul's comment that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter of sexual immorality. But this principle also applies to the church today. I mean, if a sexual affair occurs between two individuals within our church, it would create division, hurt, and disharmony. And the use of even pornographic material causes rifts in marriages that would affect our church. And even pornography use objectifies one's view of the opposite sex and results in disharmony and harm. Now, another result of failing to pursue holiness is God's punishment. That a failure to pursue holiness results in God's punishment. Now, Paul writes this in the latter half of verse 6. He says, Because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. Now, the word avenger is typically attributed 
to the government because the government is responsible for dispensing justice. If someone has violated a crime, then the government would make sure that justice is carried out by punishing that person. Now, in this case, God would punish those who persist in these sexually immoral acts in this sexual affair if they fail to repent. Now, the punishment that Paul is referring to here can occur as a consequence of sexually immoral behavior. It could result in a sexually transmitted disease. It could result in an unexpected pregnancy. It could result in broken relationships. But the focus of the verse seems to be on how God will punish those who persist in sexually immoral behavior. Now, in the case of Israel, when they committed sexually immoral acts with the Midianites in the Old Testament, God sent snakes to bite them and to kill them. Now, if a believer persists in sexually immoral behavior nowadays, I don't think God will send snakes, but it demonstrates a deficient understanding of the gospel. They fail to understand the cost of their sin. They fail to recognize that the cost to redeem them required the death of Jesus Christ, that someone had to die for them to be saved, that their sin costs someone's life. But it also demonstrates an ignorance in understanding God's forgiveness, that God also gives believers forgiveness through Christ as well. And the failure to confess, the failure to repent, demonstrates that they don't really understand God's forgiveness at all. They don't understand God's provision to turn away from sin. And this calls into question their assurance of salvation. Do they really understand what the gospel is if they continue to live according to their own desires? Now, Paul had warned the Thessalonians when he ministered among them before. I mean, he reminds them here again. That's why he writes, As we told you, beforehand and solemnly warned you. So what does Paul expect the Thessalonians to do? I mean, what does he expect us to do? Well, he expects the Thessalonians to pursue holiness in everything, even in sexuality, and that they needed to pursue this holiness. But what does that look like? Well, imagine a couple in our church. They've been dating for a few months. They sense the chemistry interaction increases, and so does the attraction to one another. They display their affection toward another through holding hands and through an occasional hug, but their desire for more continues to grow. And so they decide to talk about it on their next date. So over hamburgers and hot dotties, they share their mutual affection for one another and their desire to take it to the next physical level. And one of them shares that, hey, I've been reading in First Thessalonians, and he came across this verse, abstain from sexual immorality. Now, this person shares with the other that if they truly feel this growing sexual desire for one another, then they really need to begin thinking about the possibility of marriage. That if they don't want to get married, then they probably should call this relationship off. That's what it means to abstain from sexual morality and to pursue holiness. Or think about the single person with strong sexual desires. He's tempted regularly to look at pornography. And in his accountability group, uh, one of the guys shares something from his devotions in Hebrews, chapter 13, verse 4. It says, let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. 
Now, this brother goes home, and he thinks to himself, if I look at porn, then how would it affect how I view women in the future? Instead of seeing women as sisters in Christ, I will only view them as objects to satisfy my desires. And when I look at these images that are sexually explicit, this person is someone else's sister. They're someone else's daughter. They're someone's friend. And more importantly, they're God's daughter. If I look at these images, then I will invite these fantasies into my future relationship with my wife. So instead of viewing these sexually explicit images online, he calls a brother to pray and to think through how to trust God in the season of singleness. Now, while these examples apply to pursuing holiness and sexuality, you can apply these principles into different areas as well, whether it be stewardship of finances, it could be thought life, it could be conduct at work. But we need to know that God's will for believers is to pursue holiness in everything, even sexuality. Let's move on to our final question. Why do believers pursue holiness? I mean, what is the motivation that Paul provides for them to pursue holiness? Well, believers pursue holiness because God compels them to. God's calling us into a relationship with him that motivates us to live in a way that pleases God. I mean, we pursue holiness not because we want to earn God's love. Rather, it's because of God's love for us that we live according to his instructions. Believers pursue holiness because God compels them to. Now, Paul brings this motivation to the forefront in a few ways. First, God calls the Thessalonians to pursue holiness, that God is specifically calling them to live a life that is holy. Now, look with me at verse 7. It says, For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. So thus far in the letter, Paul has explained what God has called them to. He's called them to a relationship with himself, and he also calls them to live a life that is worthy of God. And the Thessalonians should recognize that God has not only called them to enjoy the blessings of a relationship with him, but also the blessing of pursuing a life that pleases God. And this entails putting off sexual desires. Now, God also expects that the Thessalonians would obey the divine word to pursue holiness. That the pursuit of holiness is a divine decree. It is the inspired word of God. God's words command it. That's why Paul writes in verse 8, Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God. Now, if they reject Paul's instructions as man-made instructions, that's going to be bad news for them. Because it's not just a rejection of human words, it's a rejection of God's words. It is a rejection of God's divinely given authoritative words. And the instructions for holiness finds its root in God's design. And the reason why Paul emphasizes this is because the Thessalonians may have found the gospel message to have divine authority, but then they doubted the authority by which Paul was teaching them about sexual ethics. They may have suspected that Paul's sexual ethic was just his own opinion, but Paul 
rejects this notion and this thought because Paul's teaching about holiness and sexuality is grounded in God's design and also his authority as an apostle. Now, God also gives the Thessalonians the Holy Spirit to help them pursue holiness. Now, the last half of verse 8 talks about God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. And Paul's probably referring to the Old Testament prophet Ezekiel, who predicted a day when the Lord would establish a new covenant with his people through the giving of the Holy Spirit, and that the Holy Spirit would empower believers to pursue holiness. Now, oftentimes when it comes to the pursuit of holiness, it requires us to remember that God is good. And the way that we remember that God is good is that remember that God has called us into a relationship with him, that he has opened our eyes to see that there is only one person that is truly good in the universe, and that is God. And that we as human beings, because of sin, are flawed. That means whatever perspective we have on living life, it has issues. And that only God can correct our thinking and our perspective. And the way that he does it is through the teaching of his word. And we receive his word through the Holy Spirit, not only to understand what his word says, but also to carry it out. So what is God's will for believers? Well, believers ought to remember God's will when they meditate on his word is to pursue holiness in everything, especially even sexuality, because God compels them to. That when we meditate on God's word, we remember God's will is for us to pursue holiness. And we pursue holiness in all aspects of our lives. Why? Because God compels us to. He motivates us to. Now, in the book by C.S. Lewis, The Great Divorce, he describes his imaginary journey from hell to heaven. And he uses this idea of a trip to heaven to highlight this idea that there essentially exists two types of people in the world. The first type are those who say to God, thy will be done. This means that whatever God you ask me to do, I will do. No matter what area of life it is, I will do it. And these people end up in heaven. Then there's the other person to whom God says, thy will be done. This means that this person can do whatever they want, however they want, however they see the best life is. And this leads them to choosing hell. May we be a church that desires to flourish and to pursue holiness by saying to God, thy will be done. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the teaching of your word and how it calls us to pursue holiness in every aspect of our lives. We recognize that we live in a culture where sex is permitted in many forms and that you desire for us to live in a way that is holy, even in our sexuality and other aspects of our lives. And we ask that your spirit would help us to remember that the motivation for us to pursue holiness is because of your love for us. And so we ask God that you would help us in this endeavor. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.